the story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's one of the, the most well-known stories in history, especially here in America, where there have been so many churches so many times down through the years. It seems unlikely to me that what we're going to talk about today as we look at Matthew 15 about Jesus's death and his resurrection Seems unlikely this is going to be the first time anyone in here has ever heard it. Most of us have probably heard it time and time again throughout our lives. But while the story of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection is well known, sadly it is not well believed. Doubts about the veracity of the story of Jesus have existed since the days of the apostles. Uh, In our Sunday school lesson this morning, we looked at the resurrection account from John's gospel where Thomas himself, one of the twelve, doubted. Uh, And so it's likely, it's probable, some in here this morning have some doubts about the reality of the resurrection, about Jesus and who he is and who the Bible says he is and what the Bible says he has done. Now, at times, disciples of Jesus have shamed people. That have had doubts about Jesus. And this I believe was the wrong thing to do. Because sometimes people have legitimate doubts. And when doubts are shamed. They are hidden. And hidden doubts that are shamed. Can become full blown unbelief. And even bitterness and anger. Rather than being shamed for their doubts. People should be encouraged to be honest about their doubts. To to look into them. To see why they doubt. To see if there are answers. To their doubts because their doubts are real. Now, that being said, if you have doubts and just because you have doubts and just because they're legitimate doubts doesn't mean you should not doubt your doubts. Right. Just because we doubt something doesn't mean our doubts are real in all of our questioning of things. We should also question our doubts. Often what we want to do is we want to question what's real, what's right, if this is true. But when it comes to our doubts and our excuses and things we wrestle with, there's no questioning of that. And what we need to do is question our doubts as well. Why do I doubt the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus? Now again, sometimes doubts are legitimate. Sometimes people cannot reconcile what God's word says to be true with the way they understand the world to work. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people doubt, according to Jesus, because they love darkness more than light. Jesus said some would reject him because they love darkness more than light. Now, there are uh, two primary reasons people love darkness more than light. Some people love their sin more than they love the idea of a savior or salvation. They take great pleasure in their sin. Their sin is enjoyable to them. They identify with their sin. Perhaps their sin is a part of who they are, their, who they are as people, their life. It is their lifestyle. And anything which threatens their life, anything which threatens that pleasure, anything which contradicts what they feel is good and right and true, they want to do like Jesus is rejected out of hand. So for some people, their doubts flow from their love of sin. For others, there could be self-sufficiency. Others choose self-sufficiency over salvation. Now, self-sufficiency works its way out in two ways. First, 
The very notion people need to be saved from something and they cannot save themselves. I mean, that's great. What do you mean there's something wrong with me? What do you mean I'm not good enough and wonderful enough and doggone it, people like me? What, What do you mean I'm not enough in myself? And so anything which threatens that feeling of self-sufficiency, that feeling of self-righteousness, I can do it. Like Jesus, well, it's rejected or dismissed out of hand. Because if, and it's a big if, there would be something wrong with me, I can fix it myself. I can square myself away. I don't need another. And self-sufficiency causes many people to doubt Jesus. The other way self-sufficiency works its way out in someone's life is what I would call self-determination. Those who choose self-determination determine for themselves what's right. They'll determine for themselves what's wrong. They'll determine for themselves how they ought to live. And anyone or anything like Jesus, for example, that would tell them what's right, that would tell them what's wrong, and would tell them how they ought to live their lives is rejected out of hand. And their doubts flow from their self-sufficiency and their pride. Now there are probably many areas where people deal with doubts. Creation, the inspiration and authority, reliability of God's word, sexuality, morality, issues with the church, just to name a few. And there are good answers for all of those doubts and all of those Issues, But those aren't where we're going to focus at today. Now, these doubts are real and these issues are important, but they're not the main issue. There is one main issue we've got to get right. And if we get this issue right, everything else will work its way out. And if we get this issue wrong, it doesn't matter what else we get right. And the issue, the main issue we must resolve is Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? Why is he important? And so as we begin to get into the text in just a minute, what I want you to think about is why. Why do you doubt Jesus if you do? What holds you back from fully surrendering your life to Jesus? Now, if you're an honest doubter, right, then I'm going to ask you to question your doubts about Jesus. I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, what if Jesus is true? And if he is What are you going to do about it? Now, I do this based upon something Jesus said. Jesus said, my doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Jesus says anyone can find out for sure whether or not he's true. But there is a condition. The condition is they must be willing to believe, they must be willing to receive, and they must be willing to live for Him if they knew He was true. Right. So an honest doubter is someone who would say, I, I, maybe I don't really believe in Jesus, but if I knew Jesus was true, I would believe. And I would surrender my life to Him and I would live for Jesus. Now, the reality is, this is an honest doubter. Someone who's not willing to do that has another reason. There's something else causing them to doubt. Likely their love for sin. 
Likely their sense of self-sufficiency. Likely their determination to self-determine their lives. But there is something else other than honest doubts. Because if all I want to know is the truth and live in light of the truth, then I will embrace the truth no matter what that is, how inconvenient that may be in my life. So what I want to do this morning is if you have doubts about Jesus, and if you're an honest doubter, I want you to pray something. You say, well, I don't believe necessarily. That's okay. I do. And I'll pray with you and I'll pray for you. And I want you to pray something like this. Oh God, show me whether Jesus is your son or not. And if you show me he is, I promise to surrender to him as my Savior and Lord and confess him as such before the world. Now, I want you to really pray this as we pray. Not Again, not because you believe necessarily, but because you're an honest doubter and you're really searching for the truth, whatever the truth may be. If you're not willing to pray this, then what I want you to be honest about is the fact you're not really an honest doubter. That you have... You have ulterior motives as to why you reject Jesus. It's not because there's not evidence. It's not because the truth is at stake. It's because you just refuse. I want you to be honest about that. So if you're an honest doubter, I want you to pray this as I pray. And if you're not an honest doubter, I just want you to sit there and be honest with yourself about the fact you're not an honest doubter. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and you you are real. And Jesus really died for our sins. Jesus really rose from the dead. And Jesus really forgives us, sends his spirit to live within us. Today we need your spirit to come, open our hearts and open our minds to receive the truth of your word. Father, you know the hearts and the minds of everyone in here today. I don't know who believes and who doesn't believe. I don't know who's struggling and who's strong. I don't know who's falling back and who's fervent in spirit. I don't know, but you do. And you know what needs to be done in each life, Father. So if someone is struggling to believe, struggling to keep on, let your spirit take the word today. Come alongside them and fill in those gaps in their life to give them strength to to stand and and keep going. Someone has fallen back in their relationship with you. Let your word and spirit work together to to show them the path forward, back to Jesus, so they could do your will. If someone is lukewarm, let your spirit bring deep conviction about that so they would turn to Jesus and be fervent in spirit. If someone is claims to be an honest doubter but really is just rejecting Jesus because he assaults their pride, because he assaults their sin, or he assaults their, their self-sufficiency, then, then just deal with them about that and make them see why they doubt. And if there's some that are honest doubters today... And they know they would. They just want to know the truth. Whatever that would be, they would live it out. And let your word and spirit work together to reveal to them Jesus. The Savior who came. The Savior who died. The Savior who rose again. Be glorified in, in everything that happens. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The story of Jesus' death is the crux of the issue about Jesus. Because everyone dies. But Jesus' death was unique. And this uniqueness tells us why Jesus is important. So open your Bible, if you haven't already, to, to Mark 15. Um, verses. We're going to look at verses 1 through 39. It should be on page 777 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read a lengthy passage, but it's not as long as it sounds. We're just going to look at three or four verses this morning. But the whole story we have to, to hear. And straightway in the morning... 
the chief priests held consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he released unto them a prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with him, that made insurrection with him, and had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said unto them again, What will ye that I should do to him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him! So Pilate, willing to consent the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus. When he had scourged him to be crucified, the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns. Put it on his head. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with the reed. They did spit upon him, bowing their knees to worship him. When they had mocked him, took the purple from him, put his own clothes on him, led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one, Simon, a Cyrenian, who passing by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him to the place Golgotha, which being interpreted the place of the skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them that every man should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the superscription of the accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left. The scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads, saying, Oh, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribe, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli. Lama Sabachthani, which being interpreted is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. 
The veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. When the centurion which stood over against him saw, he cried out, gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are amazed at the love you have shown for us in this passage we've just read. This is the issue that matters most. If this passage is not true, then we're wasting our time here. We're fools, wasting our lives. It's true. If Jesus died for our sins, He was the Son of God. If He rose again on the third day, this is the most important message there is. This is the thing we must get right above all else on the planet. It doesn't matter who we vote for if we're wrong about Jesus. It doesn't matter what we believe about abortion if we're wrong about Jesus. It doesn't matter what we believe about homosexuality if we're wrong about Jesus. It doesn't matter what we believe about creation or eternity or anything if we're wrong about Jesus. So today, break through any strongholds we may have erected in our minds. Break through any thought that because we're, we vote a certain way, we're good to go. Break through any thought of because we're essentially moral, we're good to go. Break through because we believe rightly about some moral issues, we're good to go. And let us question what we believe about Jesus. Jesus said that if we... Believe on Him, we'll receive eternal life. Those who don't believe will never see eternal life. The wrath of God abides upon them. Everything rises and falls on this. And so today, help us to lay aside any cares of life we have. Help us not to worry about what time it is or what we're going to do this afternoon. And in this moment, let us, let Your Word and Your Spirit examine us. Show us where we are. What needs to be done in our lives. For those that have never trusted in Jesus this morning. Oh God show them Jesus has died for them. Show them Jesus has risen. And show them Jesus is calling to them to come and lay their burdens down. And for those that, that have believed on Jesus. Just let us push in and love our Jesus more. Give ourselves to serve Him as we should. To say as the Apostle Paul to live as Christ. To die as gain. To be bold in doing His will here on the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. While there is much in this passage we read, there's only three, three truths, three points for us to look at. Two in this passage, one in next chapter. 
Two foundational truths we have to get right. We have to understand from Mark 15. First is Jesus died for our sin. Jesus' crucifixion. It aligned with the Old Testament Day of Atonement. In the Old Testament Day of Atonement, the the high priest would offer two goats to God. One goat was killed. His blood was taken into the mercy seat in the most holy place in the temple and sprinkled upon it to make atonement for the people. The other goat was taken out of the city, out into the wilderness. The high priest laid his hands upon the goat, confessed the sins of the people, and the goat was let go, symbolically carrying the sins of the world, the sins of the people of Israel, away from them. All of this was done. The sacrifice, the leading the goat away was done because of the sins of the people. And all of this, it taught the people year after year three very important truths. It taught them sin was serious. The killing of the goat was significant. It, it wasn't clean. It wasn't convenient. They gutted it. They bled it, and then they burned it. It was a a graphic, visual representation of the seriousness of sin. Of of not just sin out there somewhere, but, but of their sin. Every year as the animal was killed and gutted and bled, it was a reminder sin wasn't a minor thing. Sin wasn't something to be trifled with. Sin wasn't okay. Sin was destructive, which led to the second truth they taught them every year. Sin had consequences. The animal died because of sin. But again, it wasn't just sin out there somewhere. As the people watched, they knew that animal died because of my sin. I, What I did this year caused that thing's death. What happened to it in leading up to the to being burned and offered was my fault. If I were a Jewish man at this time, I would look at the animal being bled, killed and gutted and I would say, I did that. My sin caused that. And the third truth they were reminded of every year when they did this was sin required a sacrifice. The act of bleeding, killing, and gutting an animal, it wasn't once and done. It was done year after year. Year after year, an animal was slain. Year after year, an animal bled out. Year after year, an animal was gutted all because of them. This was the only way they could have their sins taken away or really rolled back. Their sin was so serious they couldn't just turn over a new leaf. That They couldn't just say, well, I'll do better next year. I'll be a better person. I'll come to the temple more often. I'll be more religious. That They couldn't make personal moral reforms. There was nothing they could do to fix what they had done. Their sin had necessitated the death of another living creature. Something had to die because of their sin. Sin. And while this act was performed year after year, 
there's a problem. And that is that the sacrifices never really took away the sins of the people. Hebrews 10 and 4 says that the blood of an animal cannot atone for the sins of a human. And all the yearly sacrifices did was remind them of their sin, of their sin's consequences, and point them to the fact there needed to be a better sacrifice to pay the penalty, to pay the debt their sin had earned. The better sacrifice was Jesus, who came to be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, and when He died, He was paying the debt our sin earned. Jesus cried out, it says in Matthew 15, or Mark 15, 37, He cried out with a loud voice. And in John's Gospel, we're told He cried out, It is finished. With His death, He finished the sacrificial system. With His death, He made that one great atonement that was needed. Through His death, Jesus did something no animal sacrifice could do. Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament sacrifices symbolized. Jesus' death, this awful death we read about, it teaches us three important things. Our sin is serious. Everything we read about in Mark 15, Jesus endured graphically demonstrates the severity of sin. Sin is not a minor thing. Sin is not something to be trifled with. Sin is not okay. Sin is destructive, which leads to the second truth it teaches us. Sin, our sin has consequences. Jesus died for sin, but again, not just somebody's sin out there somewhere. Your sin, my sin, our sin. When we read this and what Jesus endured, or if we watch the Passion and we see what Jesus went through with the scourging and the crucifixion, we should look at that and say, I did that. I caused that. My sin made that happen. That was my fault. Your sin killed Jesus. My sin killed Jesus. Our sin killed Jesus. Third truth the death of Jesus teaches us is a sacrifice has been made for our sin. Jesus' death on the cross is the once for all sacrifice. It is good for all times and all people and all places. It is just as effective today as it was on this day when His blood ran down. Jesus' death on the cross will not be done over and over again. It was once and done. His death on the cross will never lose its power. His death on the cross is the only sacrifice God will ever ask for to atone for our sin. But at the same time, the death of Jesus is the only sacrifice God will accept. To atone for our sin. Now that that's huge and I don't have a lot of time. But let me just say. What this means is. 
There is nothing we can do to atone for our sin. Right? The good news, Jesus has died to pay the penalty for our sin. And it is once for all, it is good for me, it's good for you. It's good if you've done a few things, it's good if you've done terrible things. It's good for everything in between, but it is also the only sacrifice God will accept. So what this means is you and I, we cannot turn over a new leaf. We cannot say today, you're right, I've sinned and my sin is bad, I'm going to do better. We must embrace the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't say, you're right, I've been immoral. I'm going to be more moral human from this point on. I'm going to make moral reforms. No, we must embrace the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't say, well, I'm going to try harder. That's the problem. I just, I don't work hard enough. I don't put forth enough effort. I'm going to do more from this point on. No, it won't work. We must embrace the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't even be more religious. Well, I'm going to come to church every time the doors are open. I'm going to tie the tenth of all that I own. I'm going to fast of everything. I'm going to do all of these religious things. And yet none of that will matter if we do not embrace the sacrifice of Jesus. Why Jesus? Because Jesus has died for our sin. Jesus' death Shows our sin, your sin, my sin is serious. It shows your sin, my sin has consequences. Something will die because of your sin and my sin. And it shows there is only one sacrifice which will ever be accepted for our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus died for our sin. Secondly, Jesus gives us access to God. In the Old Testament, there were essentially two places where a person, where the people gathered to worship. One was the tabernacle in the wilderness. One was the temple originally built by Solomon. Both of those places more or less had three areas to gather. There was the, the common area. And this is where every Jewish male could go. And this was, it had all kinds of instruments for the offerings and the sacrifices and, and things like that were made in there. And then beyond it was the holy place. And the holy place was uh, the altar of incense, the table of showbread. The priests were the only ones allowed to go there. So it went from every Jewish man to those who were Levites, of the descendants of Levi. And then beyond the holy place was the most holy place, or the holiest of all. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the mercy seat itself was. That's where really the very presence of God was deemed to be. And only the high priest could go there. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would go in there and he would take the blood of the Lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. And what separated the holy place from the most holy place was a, a veil. And if you've read the book of Leviticus, it, it gives great details about how the veil was to be made. And it's my understanding the veil was thick, like arm length thick. You couldn't just reach through it. It was this big, elaborate, ornate, heavy door. But the door was there. It was a reminder. We can't go before God 
We're sinful people. If we were to go into the very presence of God, he would smite us and we would die. And it was a constant reminder that sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, had separated God from us. We were kept from God because of our sin. But Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. Jesus gives up the ghost. And in verse 38, the veil of the temple is rent in two from top to bottom. And why do you think it's significant that it was from top to bottom? I do. And I'll tell you why. Top to bottom, it was like 20 feet tall and it was as thick as your arm. How did it rip from top to bottom, rent in half? I believe the image is meant to convey to us that God did it. But it wasn't just a convenient timing that the veil fell apart. It wasn't any human up on a ladder tearing it apart. It was was God Himself. When the Son died and the sacrifice was made, the presence into the most holy place was made possible to all people through faith in Jesus. But this isn't just my idea. The Bible actually tells us this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. To the original readers, this would have been an amazing statement. Jewish Christians would have been, it would have boggled their minds to understand they could have gone into the holiest place, the most holy place, into the very presence of God, and yet that's exactly what the passage is saying. What Jesus did through the the tearing of His flesh, through His death on the cross, was bring to an end this separation between God and man. And now, all of us are invited to come to God through Jesus. And, And notice how we can come. We can come boldly. The high priest, as I understood it, did not necessarily go boldly into the most holy place. Because if he went when he wasn't supposed to, well, God would kill him. And if he went and there was sin in his life, well, God would kill him. And and if while he was in there, he was irreverent about the presence of God, God God would kill him. I mean, we see that a lot in the Old Testament, like when the the, the ark is on the on the cart going and it's and it staggers a little bit and the fellow reaches up to steady it. What did God do? God God killed him. So the holy, the high priest went into the most holy place with much fear and much trembling. Because if things were not right with him, if he didn't do it exactly the way God said, and at the time God said, and everything in order, God would kill him. And yet now, we're invited to boldly come into the presence of God. I mean, it, it, more like Moses going up the mountain. To be with God at the end of Exodus 20. We're we're invited to go to God. We don't go with fear. We don't go with feelings of inferiority. We don't go as trembling slaves before a harsh master who is looking for a reason to smite us. We go as dearly loved children. We don't hesitate because of past failures. Because Jesus' blood has cleansed us. And given us access. Anytime we need God, we can go. Anytime we want to go, we can go. Because the blood of Jesus has made it possible. So to answer the question, why Jesus? 
Because Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus died for us, taking the consequences of sin, your sin and my sin. In doing so, He paid the penalty for our sin we could not pay. He opened up access to God which we could never get on our own. What Jesus offers us in the cleansing of sin and the freedom to go before God is only available through Jesus. You and I cannot do anything on our own to take away the stain of our sin. You and I cannot do anything on our own to merit our favor before the Lord, to earn our way into His presence. Only Jesus offers this. Only Jesus gives this. And it's available for everyone. We see an immediate application to the power of the blood of Jesus. Verse 39. And the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There's a pagan soldier who helped crucify Jesus, confessing Jesus as the Son of God. Only Jesus could cause a man like this to confess Jesus as the Son of God. What Jesus did for this centurion, He can do for you. He can do for me. He can do for all of us. But, but Jesus alone can do it. You can't do it for yourself. I can't do it for myself. So we could ask a question, well, how do I know? Now, that sounds great. That's a great story. How do I know Jesus really opened up the way? And he really atoned for my sin? Because the Romans, I mean, legitimately crucified lots of people. And, and they crucified lots of Jews in their time. They, they ruled over Judea. And in fact, even in our story, we know there's at least two more Jews crucified on the day Jesus was crucified. How can we be sure his death is anything significant and not just another tragic death at the hands of an oppressive Roman government? Well, that leads us to our final truth in the point of Easter. Jesus rose from the dead. Mark 16. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher, the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white raiment, and they were affrighted. And he said to them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher. For they trembled and were amazed. Neither they said anything to any man, for they were afraid. We know Jesus died for our sins and gives us access to God because Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection is the greatest proof he was not a martyr for the cause. His resurrection from the dead is the greatest proof. He didn't just make the wrong people angry. In fact, the reality is his death would make, have no significance any more than anyone else who died in this time that were not for his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus powerfully declares he is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. He secures the salvation we cannot secure for ourselves. 
And he alone gives us access to God. Many a a doubter has been critical of Christians, disciples of Jesus through the years, who are not willing to question their beliefs. The reasoning is we're not willing to question our beliefs because we're afraid of what we might find out. And I contend the same is true for many a doubter. They're afraid to question their doubters for fear of what they might find out. Jesus is real. And he really did rise from the dead. Well, there's a certain weight and a significance to him, isn't there? To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if Jesus is not who God's word says he is, and if Jesus did not do what God's word said he did, Jesus is of no importance whatsoever. However, if Jesus is who God's word says he is, and if Jesus did what God's word said he did, then he is of ultimate importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is of moderate importance in our lives. If he is the Christ who died for our sins, rose on the third day, paid the penalty, gives us access, then he has claims on our life. He has claims on our beliefs. He has claims on what we do and how we do it. He is Lord and we must submit to it. And so I contend, many a doubter won't question their doubts. Not because it's ignorant to believe. Not because they have such a scientific mind they can't just have faith. Not because there are so many contradictions in God's word they can't reconcile it. Not because there's just so many questions they don't have answers to. But because if they were to believe in Jesus, he would make claims on their life instantly. And they choose unbelief over Jesus. This morning, if you have never personally received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then this is what I'm urging you to do today. To come to Jesus. When I say come to Jesus, I'm not saying try harder. And I'm not saying be more moral. And I'm not saying be more religious. And I'm not saying turn over a new leaf. When I say come to Jesus, I'm urging you to turn to Jesus from your sin. Believing Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. Believing Jesus rose from the dead. But when we talk about believing in Jesus, we have to understand. Believing in Jesus is more than believing there's a Jesus out there somewhere who existed. It's more than believing there's a God out there somewhere. Believing on Jesus involves the heart, the mind, and the will. The mind learns. Jesus died for my sins. And Jesus rose again. And the mind realizes if Jesus really died for my sins, then my sins are serious. The heart then may want what Jesus offers. The heart wants the Jesus who died for them. The heart wants the God who loves them to send Jesus. The heart wants the freedom from condemnation. But then the will makes the final and lasting decision. 
It is possible for someone to understand in their minds what Jesus has done. To want in their hearts what Jesus has done. But to refuse the salvation Jesus offers. Again, not because of their real legitimate doubts, but because they love darkness more than light. Because to, to take hold of Jesus, well, it does require us to let go of our sins. I cannot cling to my sinful way of life and to Jesus at the same time. It requires us to let go of our self-sufficiency. For I, I cannot say, well, I'm good enough and I'm going to square it away and cling to Jesus at the same time. It requires us to let go of our self-determination because I cannot cling to the Jesus who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and determine I'll choose how I live. I'll decide what's right. I'll do what I want to do. We have to let go of those things so we can cling to Jesus. And this is a decision each of us must make for ourselves. And it is made intentionally. You and I, we must choose Jesus for ourselves. No one can do it for us. We cannot do it accidentally. We intentionally say, I want Jesus. And we cry out to Him to save us. And so I'm pleading with you as we close. Don't let what you may not understand about God's word or about life keep you from what you do understand about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Don't let the passing pleasures of sin keep you from Jesus. Don't let your self-sufficiency keep you from Jesus. Don't let your sense of self-determination keep you from Jesus. Flee to Jesus this morning and be saved. I ask you to stand and bow your heads and close your eyes. If you need the salvation Jesus died to provide, and you are ready to surrender to Him as Savior and Lord, and I want you to raise your hand to Jesus as a way of taking hold of Him and His salvation. It's more than saying, I know I need Jesus. It's a way of saying, I want Jesus right here and right now. Reach out and let Him take your hand and pull you to Himself. We're going to take a few minutes and pray. If you've raised your hand, use this time to cry out to Jesus to save you.